Welcome to the Growing Rural Podcast, where we focus on all things rural in South Carolina. We will discuss topics on healthcare, economy, education, and the unique culture that is our rural state. This podcast is supported by the South Carolina Center for Rural and Primary Healthcare. Please join us for today's topic. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Growing Rural Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Bennett. Our guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Crouch, who is the Deputy Director of the Rural and Minority Health Research Center and an assistant professor at the University of South Carolina here in Columbia. So tell everyone about uh, just who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing today. Yes, so Dr. Bennett um, interviewed me for what was the South Carolina Rural Health Research Center back in 2015. Um, And I came on as a research assistant professor with Dr. Bennett and Dr. Probst and Dr. Everth in 2015, and then um, have been with the center ever since. I love the connections with the center. Um, in 2017, I switched to an assistant professor role and have been deputy director since 2017. Um, the work with Dr. Probst and Dr. Bennett and Dr. Everth have all focused on, a lot of my work is focused on um, early childhood experiences, which we're going to get into more today. Right, right. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up. You don't sound like you're from the city, if I can say that. Yeah, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky originally, which is a pretty large metropolitan city. But I grew up a lot of my time in my childhood um, in Glasgow, Kentucky, Mm -hmm. which is in central Kentucky, which is where my papa Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, uh, was a large animal veterinarian. So Mm -hmm. my parents shipped my brother and I off for at least three months every year to their, like, um, we not really a farm, but it was like a big country house out out in Glasgow. And we drove around. At that point, he was not, had not sold his veterinary practice, so he was still driving us around to um, different big farms. And we saw horses being delivered mm-hmm. and cows being delivered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as a five year old or six year old, I was very afraid of a cow. Right, right. <laughs> so we spent a lot of time growing up in rural, mm-hmm. um, even though we were like city kids. Right, right. So we went to pig farms and saw them being inoculated, et cetera. So, so you got a full dose. We so. got a full dose. Yeah. <laughs> of, um, and then I've done some work teaching in rural areas over the years. Mm-hmm. I was working for the Governor Scholars Program of Kentucky, which had a campus at Eastern Kentucky University mm-hmm. and at Moorhead State, both of which, you know, close to Appalachia, one's in Appalachia. And so um, we have a lot of rural experiences in our family. Tell us a little bit about the work you're doing now at the research center. Yeah, so I have spent, I guess, the last portion of my career really focused on looking at rural-urban differences and adverse childhood experiences. So what are rural kids getting or not experiencing or not experiencing compared to their urban counterparts, as well as looking at um, positive childhood experiences. So so, so what are these childhood yeah, I experiences? Say, I need to get some examples. Right, yeah, so yeah. adverse childhood experiences have been measured a multitude of ways. There's two ways they've really been measured. One was the original Felitti and Onda study in like the 1990s. It was original paper was 1999. Looked at okay, what happens for these adults that are very obese? What it makes them gain or lose weight? What's what's happening to them? And one of the main issues they determined was trauma, childhood trauma, made people mm-hmm. have a harder time keeping weight off. And this is, field has evolved greatly. But they asked trauma about they asked about verbal abuse as a child, physical Mm -hmm. abuse as a child, sexual abuse as a child. And so that's often what's asked in survey data now. So for example, the behavioral risk factor surveillance system, South Carolina's had a number of years that we've collected data on adverse childhood experiences in South Carolina. So I've looked at what's happening with rural kids and rural Mm -hmm. adults reflecting on their childhood in South Carolina versus urban adults reflecting on their childhood. 
as well. Okay. Now we've learned there may be other ways to measure ACEs that may also be impactful. So we want to ask caregivers about current children mm-hmm. that are under the age of 18, what's happening with them. So we obviously can't ask caregivers about sexual abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse. But we can ask about did you have a parent or guardian pass away? Mm-hmm. Have you experienced divorce? Have you experienced economic hardship? Mm-hmm. Racial ethnic mistreatment? A multitude of ways that children may experience or be approached by adversity. Mm-hmm. We're all starting to look at some of the neighborhood effects, like where you grow up. Do mm-hmm. you live in a food desert? Do you live in a place where you have access to the internet? Mm-hmm. Those aren't adverse experiences, but they do give you They're a community context of people being able to you know, have outside resources. So these childhood events, you call them ACEs, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not saying that if you have trauma as a child, you're going to be obese. It's no. an, it's an association. It's an association, But there yes. does seem to be some sort of causal path that way there. Yeah, so they've talked a lot about, I don't do neurological research, but we right. often cite people that do. And so Shankoff looks at, okay, this neurological issue. So what happens is kids that are in this trauma maybe have a traumatic event happen and they may have a flood of toxic stress, Mm -hmm. which creates hormones that may make them um, engage in riskier behaviors that may, not always, engage in riskier behaviors through adolescence, adulthood, and into full adulthood. So we see kids have experienced a higher count. So we often look at dosing of ACEs. Mm -hmm. So you may have had three or more or four or more. These are traumatic events that happen to you. Mm-hmm. And you may be more likely, again, there's some resiliency here, which we're right, gonna get right. into later on in the podcast, I right. hope, but looking at, okay, what happens to these kids are more likely to engage in, in smoking, drinking, riskier sexual behavior, obesity is one of them, right. have mental health, um, you know, depression, anxiety, or physical health issues. And so, so a lot of these could be, I guess, coping mechanisms that they yes, turn to to absolutely. face the trauma. Yes. Yes, and before people would always, maybe people maybe had hypothesized or understood a little bit about this, but this had been, had not been, I guess, fully flushed out or investigated within the last, until the last 20 years where this mm-hmm. research has really evolved. Right. So our work, Dr. Bennett and I, myself, and Dr. Propes have published on looking at, and Dr. Ratcliffe, who's formerly at our center, have looked at, okay, what happens among South Carolina adults looking back? And we found that rural was no worse off than urban. Then we've also looked at, using a national data set with kids, mm-hmm. what happens to rural kids versus urban kids in present day. Because we're asking, the first research we've done looked at adults looking back on their childhood answering right. questions. But right. now we want to know more contemporaneously what's happening with kids in right. the U.S. Are they currently experiencing these things? Are they currently experiencing ACEs? And we found that rural kids are experiencing nearly all of them at higher rates than urban kids, mm-hmm. with the exception of racial ethnic mistreatment. Mm. And it maybe it's because we have less minorities in um, lower, lower diversity, in lower rural. diversity in rural, in some rural, in some in some rural. Yes, right. one of the splits I think you and I have talked about doing next is looking at okay, if we look at just minorities in rural. What's their experience of racial ethnic mistreatment? Right, which right. we have not yet been able have not done. But it's yeah. an interesting question to look at. And that's one of the problems with a lot of rural research is we look at large rural areas to get good numbers to get good mm-hmm. data, but so many places you know there are some rural areas that are predominantly white there are some that are predominantly minority yes and so a lot of those effects kind of get smoothed out so to speak right yes and that's like one of the issues with you know rural data suppression right which are both we have both of us have a similar of the same mentor dr jam probes who's right. always been on a rant to um federal agencies to like release more rural data or give more access because mm-hmm. that's one of the issues so this year you know you and i are both um working on a project 
which is funded by the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy, to look at, okay, what's happening with ACEs, so adverse childhood experiences and positive childhood experiences in rural and urban where we can use a full data set versus this one where it's public use where right. it's restricted because of right. the disclosure issues. Right. So we haven't been able to look at kids in Western communities, so like Midwest, like Montana, South Dakota, North Dakota, some of those areas, as well as small Northeast states like Connecticut or Vermont, because the data just wasn't there in a right. public use data set. So, right. Yeah. So we're improving the so we're strength of those relationships. Improving the strength there. of those results. Yeah. So when we're talking about, you know, you said rural kids tend to have higher rates. Mm-hmm. You know, what what's the percentages? What's what's the, you know, is it fifty percent of kids have an ACE? Is it twenty percent? I think it's more like the 50%. It's right. more like the majority of kids have at least, have at least one. Have at least one, and then right. it gets lower for four, two or more, three or more, four or more. Right. I think one of the main things we're seeing with rural children is economic hardship. Because mm-hmm. we know, I mean, you do know rural work way longer than I have, and right. rural kids are different from urban kids for a constellation of factors. Mm-hmm. Not just because they live in a rural, it's not the rural part in itself, right? right? And so one of the issues is the poverty is higher in rural areas, especially for kids. Mm-hmm. And it's also, that's also corresponds to one of the ACEs where they have the highest rates, which is the economic hardship. Mm-hmm. So you and I have had a paper published in Journal of Rural Health that talked about, okay, if we could use economic, any kind of economic support system as a lever we may be able to reduce at least one of those ACEs in rural kids. Right. Have you seen research that indicates some of the ACEs are more powerful? Like I can see economic hardship making a lasting impact, but possibly not as much as physical abuse or an emotional abuse scenario. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's kind of hard to study for kids right now just because we're not able to ask kids, we're not gonna be able to ask parents or caregivers What's happening with your kids? Yeah. Are you sure kid experiencing those? But I think that those, from a neurological standpoint, would be much more traumatic in mm-hmm. some ways than other types of household dysfunction, mistreatment, et cetera. Right. But right. also, the cool part is, Dr. Bennett, is that we know there are ways to build resiliency mm-hmm. in children. And so one of that's our next part of our what's happened is you and I both attended a Montana, Montana Summer Institute where we learned a lot about positive childhood experiences. Right, and we've right. both gone forward with that research since then. So we've looked at rural urban differences and positive childhood experiences. What we found is these experiences include, you know, volunteering after school mm-hmm. or um, being involved in your church or Boy Scouts or some other like. Having a social having community Having that group. social community group, mm-hmm. um, sharing ideas sharing ideas with your caregiver there's all kinds of like these really positive experiences supportive supportive social work social networks and what we found thankfully is that rural kids had higher rates of almost all of those Mm -hmm. except for after school activities and they just because it's just a resource it's just a resource you maybe you can you can't afford it or you don't want to drive back and forth to school if you already live don't have it or just don't have it yeah but to hear to see quantitatively that we're seeing kids have some of these higher things to build these things we know help build resiliency, the social capital, these support networks, having someone that mentors you is really, I think, a positive take. Right, right. Because sometimes we look, read the rural research and may feel like, okay, there's no hope, but there is hope. Right. And there's also a lot of programming that's being done. Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, um, I'm the evaluator for the home visiting program in South Carolina for maternal infant early childhood home visiting program. So it's called McVee. Mm-hmm. And we've looked at we what's happening. Acronyms. Yeah, what'd you say? We love our acronyms. We love our acronyms here. ACE, PCE, and McVee. It's going to be a test at the end of this. Right. <laughs> um, but we learned that home visiting can be a really powerful way to help families figure out, you know, how do we get 
more economic support system mm-hmm. stuff. How do we finish school? How do we um, help with you know positive parenting and discipline and like how do you know all yeah. these ways that you may not have grown up knowing, but they the home visitor is able to build a relationship with the parent or caregiver mm-hmm. to help them work forward on these issues to build resiliency in their own kids. Right, right. And we just did a like client satisfaction survey this past summer where we asked or the summer before last, so summer twenty nineteen pre pandemic, mm-hmm. and asked caregivers what do you like and not like about home visiting? And their general response was, we love home visiting. It's been helpful for us, sometimes hard for scheduling, et cetera, but right. those are impactful ways to get into rural areas. Right. And we know there's a lot of rural home visiting sites, especially in South Carolina, which is wonderful. And then the second thing is, I'm gonna give a plug to your program for a second, oh, that's okay. yeah. is that um, you know the South Carolina Rural and Primary Healthcare Center has a wonderful grant program it's called rural, rural Innovations. You can propose what you like. Mm-hmm. One of the things we proposed was, okay, let's look and see, can we help improve family therapy rates in rural elementary schools? Because we know so that- delivering it at the school. Delivering level. at the school. So yeah. let's like help families get their keep their appointments. What do they need? Do they need internet in order to get so? Do they need resource right. help? What would help them to achieve higher rates of family therapy? And so, because the school is a hub for a lot of rural communities, the school, everybody goes there. Yes. They go to one. Most rural communities just have one. Yes, I think there's six elementary schools in my district right now, which is absurd to think about. Yeah, and the school mental health professionals know them. They know the families. Right. They know the kids. They know where they live because a lot of times they're living in that community as well. Mm-hmm. So just a great resource as a hub spot for people to get therapy and as well as to get assistance for things they may need. Right. So when you're talking about resiliency and uh, home visitation and all these kinds of things, uh, helping to create some positive childhood experiences, theoretically counteracting some of these ACEs. Mm-hmm. Um, and do we have any indication, I, I probably don't have a whole lot of longitudinal data on that yet. No. Right, so we don't, we, we see some anecdotal data, we some preliminary data that would indicate it's moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So what's the funding stream for these kinds of programs? How do we, figure out how as a society to support these on a larger scale on a more robust scale no dr ben i think that's a great question i think that's just emerging mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy after 20 years of research and aces and pces only like about five or six for my own career but i think it's emerging still we've learned home visiting was funded under the obama administration mm-hmm. so it gets really got started in south carolina we had some sites in 2013 but much more starting in 2014 forward and so a lot of the funding streams for early childhood, et cetera, are focusing on ACE PC, or developing these PCEs mm-hmm. has been relatively new, maybe mm-hmm. in the last 10 years. Some programs exist, but maybe not as a mass scale. Like home visiting's been around a long time, but maybe not as a mass scale with federal funding. We're also seeing, you know, um, state funding going towards this, like mm-hmm. your all's program with you know, funding, doing this cooperative agreement and let's see like these like test sites. Let's see how this helps family, you know, get into therapy. Right. But I think we're also starting to see foundations get involved with this. Mm. Robert Wood Johnson's put out a call recently about funding, you know, policies that would help kids overcome some of the adversities they faced, including during the COVID-19 pandemic. A lot right. of us focus right. on COVID-19 because we may have had kids that were out of school for several months parents trying to work they may right. be left by themselves right. which is not their fault but they may be what happens there's some circumstances yeah. this is circumstances and right. so research surrounding that because home visiting has shifted to virtual a lot during this mm-hmm. which may or may not create the same experience but it's also what we had to do for this time period in history but i think right. they're 
I think the funding stream for this has started in the last few years, but I think the building resiliency and building social networks and building social support, I think a lot of that research is really on the cusp of, like it's just getting started, which is kind of incredible. Right, for such a, I guess that's the long, what is what is the Martin Luther King, the quote, the, the arc of justice is long. Uh-huh. It's, I guess it's the same thing with research. You're finding things and we're starting to learn a lot more about it and then it takes a while for it to really root hold and get some good practices and get the programs out there and start moving the needle on it. Absolutely. We've been talking about adverse childhood experiences for you know 21 years now and we start talking about positive childhood experiences maybe five years ago. Right, right. And quantitatively assessing it in the last couple years. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of remarkable that it's taken such a long time to think about, okay, what are what's the flip to this coin right how do we we know these things happen we know some people do better than others afterwards right what are some of the reasons that may be but i think you brought up a great point is we're looking at cross-sectional data sets often we're not Mm -hmm. looking at longitudinal we can't follow people through time as much right so it's hard to know what event happened at what time and what could you know the sequencing of that and all that kind of thing i think the sequencing sequencing is one of the things that's most remarkable Mm -hmm. that we don't know yet yeah, and I think that would be an interesting thing because I'm sure there are rural, talking about environments, the rural mm-hmm. environment can be very different than an urban, mm-hmm. than a suburban, than a micro-urban. Mm-hmm. They're all, they have all very different issues, you know. And, yep. You know, it's interesting, like the economic instability that you're talking about, a lot of people might be like, well, that doesn't sound traumatic, um, but it absolutely can be if you're not, if you're hungry. You know, if you go to school hungry, for example. Yep. If you're not sure what you're going to eat this weekend because your family's chronically poor, that that is huge, and that that is that crosses the spectrum on rurality and urbanicity. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's interesting. You know, talking about things like safety. You know, I wonder. You know, high crime environments, urban and rural, are going to be differently impactful on abuse and trauma and economics mm-hmm. and all that kind of, it's kind of this cycle depending on your context right yeah and i think one of the things i forgot to like really clarify about the economic hardship is they're asking did you did your family have any trouble covering like basic necessities food right. housing etc so these are some really core things that people may not be able to access right. it's not can you go eat out or go exactly to the movie? yeah did you and buy so, food for your family the housing like you know instable unstable housing or unstable food Thing. I think that's one of the main reasons we think schools are so important in rural mm-hmm. is because they're your resource for like we're talking about for the rural innovations grant right counseling right but also they're your source for food mm-hmm. and for you know some like you know some some stable resources that may be available through that school right yeah and I think that's one thing that was really brought to the public's attention that they I think a lot of people didn't really realize was that food is primary to well, the food delivered at schools, absolutely, the breakfast and lunch program, a lot of kids wouldn't otherwise eat if they didn't have that. And setting up these delivery sites and home delivered and pickup sites at the schools was, I think, revolutionary for a lot of folks. They'd never consider that. Absolutely. I know we saw that in Columbia, where mm-hmm. I live, but I hope we also saw that in parts of rural South Carolina. We did. And there, there were a lot of school districts that had pickup sites, and there were some that utilized their bus systems to... Wow. Take it to the bus stops and that's do those awesome. kinds of things, which are good creative ways. And, you know, and th- I think that's an advantage of a rural community. You can actually do that. Absolutely. It's going to be a lot more difficult in, you know, Charleston or Columbia just because of the volume wise. Um, yeah. But those are good solutions. I think that's one of the really supportive things we can learn from this, though, is that these mm-hmm. rural communities is like interconnectedness 
while it may drive people crazy for some things, right. it, does, it is helpful for some, getting some resources to kids, for example. Right. Because again, the mental health professional, we told them about the rural innovations grant. We were like, we've got this grant that may help you see families and may help some of their needs. Mm-hmm. They're like, what, sign us up. Because right. that was a support that's not always there for them. Mm-hmm. And some of these people are, you know, going and buying groceries and helping people figure out their rent and figuring out their bill. Like they're helping them a lot of logistical stuff on their own. Mm-hmm. So it's more acting as a social worker role than maybe it be as just a mental health counselor. Yeah, and it is interesting. The more that we really dive deep into some of these issues at the rural community level, how they operate as a unit in a lot of ways. They feel mm-hmm. the strong sense of community cohesion, helping each other out, um, but there's just fewer resources there. They don't have a large hospital system for the most part. Absolutely. And how do you coordinate that? I think your program is a great example of let's use a school system to see if we can't move that needle. Um, Absolutely. We've got another funded program using libraries for the same thing. It's huge. Yes. You know, putting social workers in a library, for example. Um, So using these different ways, it, it sometimes it just takes one position, one person to kind of fill in a lot of gaps for people. And over time, you'll see a huge, huge difference. Dr. Ben, I'm like really excited about your old library program, <laughs> just because <laughs> my family walks to the library all the time by right. our house, because our right. lab, local libraries had outdoor browsing, et cetera. But you know, before that, when we'd go inside and you see people using the computer, they've, the internet's mm-hmm. needed there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, and people are using it as a resource, sometimes even a daily resource. And so to get that same system going in rural, to like give them more, you know, help, to pay for social workers and help. This is like huge. It could be hugely impactful. Yeah, and that's our hope. And, you know, we have funded that. And I'm quickly looking up when this was released. We had an episode about the library program that was released uh, season two, episode two. So for those of you listening now, this is coming out after that. So look that up. We actually had Union County, which is one of our uh, ringleaders in the rural areas doing this. So that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and Union County is one of the um, places where we're having hitting two elementary schools for the Rural Innovations Grant there, right. so yeah. Right, yeah, because you know, philosophically, we're trying to take this larger approach as a center of directing various kinds of resources into the same community, like a Union County, like mm-hmm. Lee County, things like that, to see if we can't get them over that tipping point. And, Absolutely. You know, theoretically, a library, a school-based therapy program these are additional pces that come down the down the pike for some of these kids who are suffering and having issues so i'm curious about you know adults who had an ace a childhood ace for example Mm -hmm. Uh, they might have some sort of risk behavior Um, you know they might be obese smokers mental health issues those kinds of things as a direct result or an ancillary result or some downstream effect of that do we have any indication that they continue that cycle? You know, if they were abused as a child, do they inflict that abuse, for example? Do they, uh, economic hardship obviously cycles through families before mm-hmm. they can break out of it. You know, is there any indication that this is a kind of a self-perpetuating cycle? I wouldn't call it self-perpetuating, just because that like makes the blame, I think, on the individual versus sure. the society as a whole. But I get what you're, I completely get what you're saying. There's right. often we see intergenerational cycles of trauma. Right. And I think that's where it's so important for programs like the Rural Innovations Family Therapy Program, where we're mm-hmm. like getting into doing family therapy with the whole family versus just the kid, because break we're that able cycle. to help the parent and caregiver as well as the child. I don't think that um, parents or caregivers want to repeat the cycle, right? It's just they may right. not know 
how to break it or ways to improve or things. And I think it's where you have home visiting, mm-hmm. you have schools that are involved, you have like library systems doing social work stuff. There's a lot of ways that we can intervene and then prevent or mitigate the consequences or you know associated relationships with adverse childhood experiences. I think that's a really bright spot of this we're learning mm-hmm. is this does not have to be a perpetuating cycle. This right. can, this intergenerational trauma can be broken. Right. One of the most powerful things was we've done some site visits in rural areas, and one of the ladies that came to do it at the site visit, she said, you know, I grew up and I had five aces, mm. and I have two kids, and they're both in middle school, mm. and they've just had two. Yeah. And she was like crying. She was like, that's progress. It's progress. Like mm-hmm. she was like, I didn't even know why I felt this way from the trauma until I learned more about this research, and now right. I understand more about why this has impacted me so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But she's like, but I'm do- changing my, change. I've been able to make these improvements so my kids have less. And she's like, I'm so thankful for that. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, people can obviously, this is not per- perpetuating, it's just they may not right. be able to have the resources needed to improve. And, you know, often, you know, when you have lower income folks in a rural area, their access to mental health services is greatly reduced. Right. And so they don't have the resources to pay for because there's not equal parity across Mm -hmm. all insurances if you even have insurance Mm -hmm. there's not the resources you can access and then a lot of folks just don't have that time or mental time yeah absolutely you know it's it's that stress response of i just trying to take care of the basics and i don't have time to think about myself and take care of myself yeah it's like if you're trying to cover your basic resources it's hard to find time to do things like show be there for therapy etc right so i think some financial incentive slash help with resources is huge because that may alleviate some stress of having to miss part of a shift of work or figure out how to get enough gas in your car to drive to go to this appointment. I mean, like things that we, I personally take for granted, right? Right, Right. But that are not taken for granted for a lot of people in in like these communities. And so this is huge. And we can figure out ways to help them with the whole family. And that again, circling back to placing it in the school or a library makes it central places they might go to anyway. And what has less stigma. Like there's a lot of stigma surrounded by, okay, you're parked in the doctor's office parking lot or you're parked at your local DHEC clinic where you may be right. getting STD screening. You know, that's right. some, there's issues with other types of things that people might, they might not want to see their car there for whatever reason. Right, right. Nobody cares if their car's at a library or right. they are at a school, right? Those right. are good places to be. Yeah, in a small town, everybody knows everybody's business, right? Right, so the stigmatization of mental health support or of receiving resources, I think can go way more if it's mm-hmm. within the compass of a school or a library. So that's why I think these programs that you all are starting to fund are just huge. Yeah, and that push also towards, um, and this is a bit of a tangent, but behavioral health integration into primary care, for example. Yeah. Kind of, it's a one-stop shop, increases the resources, but also reduces the stigma and kind of elevates it to the real health problem that it actually is. So people will you know, view it differently and hopefully see care differently. Absolutely, Dr. Bennett, yep. So uh, tell me, is there any, uh, are there any policy changes or works in place or at the state, national level that are starting to try to address some of these issues that we can do to, at a macro level to try to impact and improve ACEs, treatment for ACEs, PCEs, all of those things? Yeah, I think at a, at a macro level, we've seen, you know, increased funding for early services. I don't know if we've seen inc- for like, you know, early intervention services. I'm not sure we've seen increases in funding yet for any kind of behavioral health programs. Right. But I hope that will come under the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. I think they're trying to tackle a lot of that. And I think one of the issues they are looking at is, you know, how do, how do we improve our nation's mental health as a whole? 
which has become even more evident, I think, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Right, right. And obviously, you know, we can't ever have a podcast again for a while, I think, without talking about COVID. Right, sorry. Um, no, it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. but, but it's a legit, and I think COVID is interesting, not only because of the massive impact it's had, but it's it's highlighted all these issues in our healthcare systems and our mm-hmm. societies that have been festering, but haven't really been brought to light until this really hit home for a lot of people. Right, Exa- so, exactly. Tell us, you know, I, I don't think there's a ton of research out there, but, you know, what do you suspect is happening ACE-wise with COVID? Yeah, so I've actually spoken a lot with my, our, my children's pediatrician about this because he's mm-hmm. done some stuff with ACEs and PCEs he's published on before. And I mm-hmm. think one of the issues is that you probably are seeing higher rates of maltreatment and higher mm-hmm. rates of ACEs just because we definitely have had some economic hardship right. issues. We've had, you know, I don't know how what the count is from closures and layoffs. People un, unemployed at this point, but it's right. in the millions. Mm-hmm. And so we see joblessness. We see um, inflexibility with people's work. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say with my own children, I was home for them for three and a half months, and my own mental health suffered for a few months. And sure. like yelling at them because I was trying to be on a call while trying to do right. And you're stuff for work. And, yeah, yeah. It's ever, it's, and that's someone that has more resources for help. Mm-hmm. So I think if it's already it's this bearing it's bearing. Le- I think it's like making evident more so issues that you're right that were already there. Food insecurity, the role of school, being in-person school for mm-hmm. caretaking purposes, caregiving purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, socialization. Socialization. All the benefits as a society we have from school systems mm-hmm. that were not able to be in place due to a deadly pandemic. And a lot of our teachers, school staff, are kind of a front line for recognizing abuse and ACE Absolutely. And issues yeah. and things like that, right? Yeah, so just how we've seen, you know, people predicting, so we have colleagues that do cancer research, and they're saying, okay, a lot of these cancers that are maybe more preventable, like you're doing a mammogram every year, or you're doing, you know. Right. we've missed a lot there. We missed you know? a lot. So we're going to see lower rates of diagnosis for breast cancer for a mm-hmm. while. Well, I think we're also seeing much less much lower rates of diagnosis of maltreatment or abuse or even beyond maltreatment and abuse just some basic issues like children need food and children need housing help and all this there's been a lot more of this stuff that's kind of missing just because we've not been able to be in contact with those families and kids Mm -hmm. and then at least with Richland County there's been a lot of kids families are just like lost lost the system because they can't get a hold of them etc because of what's happened so I think that it has laid bare how our country, which is supposed to be a virtual country, has does not have the child care system, support, social support systems, et cetera, in place mm-hmm. that a lot of other countries may have. Right, a lot of those social supports that... Huge, especially you know, for women. Right. Which are often, the more often be the caregiver. We've seen a lot of issues with, you know, women job loss and then women leaving the workforce. To take care of the kids. To take care of the kids. Right. I think my generation's been incredibly impacted by that in right. ways that we cannot even quantify yet. Yeah, and we've heard a lot of anecdotes about uh, rural practices, especially being down on staff because um, the mom has stayed home with the kids because yes. their, their kids are not in school and yes. they have to choose between the two. And It will be fascinating to look at this quantitatively going mm-hmm. forward just because it has been so impactful. Like my own children's school, we've had teachers over there for 17 years that have had to stay home with their children right. now because their children are doing e-learning. So it's just been, it's been a dramatic shift mm-hmm. in or kids left unattended, and there's been a lot of kids left right. unattended because there's no choice in the family. So right. the impacts, I think, of this are many-fold. Yeah. And then as far as home visiting, we're supposed to virtual home visiting for the safety of the home visitor and of the family. Mm-hmm. But you're also, home visitors are kind of one of the, again, a frontline worker who sees 
what's needed in the family or what's right. happening in the family. That and you so, miss if it's a virtual call. It's absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you see a role for, I guess, the tele option going forward? I mean, I, I know rural places are far flung. It's difficult to do home visiting because just distance wise, maybe you can't get to as many as you could in a city. Right. Um, would there be like a hybrid approach or could this be a wake up call to say, hey, we could use this some, but we still need to be in person as well? Yeah, I think there's been a mixed response from home visitors. I think mm. most home visitors really appreciated it. You know, they, you know, we have home visitors may have experienced burnout, et cetera, from driving the car. They're in their car a lot. It's like right. social workers. And, I mean, they basically are social workers and they're in the car all the time going right. different places. But I think one of the issues is they need to be like able to drive by that person's house or apartment and go see what's going on and be in the home, etc. Yeah. And so that face to face of like you have a wide spectrum of families with different issues, right? So like we've had home visitors that have said I've seen drug abuse in the corner before I got to the house. Yeah. So you're there's able to detect some issues and maybe able to intervene with the kids earlier than you might not have been as well. But then you also right. see families that are like needing the resource but it's still very highly functioning and maybe you don't need as much, then maybe it could be a more of a hybrid. I think right. the issues that's not been studied or looked at yet because this had never happened. Right, right. And so a lot of evidence-based programs like Nurse Healing Partnership, for example, which always has really great um, evaluation measures, we don't know how that's gonna do with rural. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And people are already asking us what's happened in Mimi's benchmarks since, and we're just starting to look at the data and see. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah, it'll be, uh it's an unfortunate experiment. Very unfortunate experiment. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, some national resources and and national news sites, et cetera, have started to look at some of this. The New York Times has a little mm-hmm. mapping of like caregivers, caregivers leaving the workforce, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But as far as like real time data to know what's happened for long term for kids, I think it's going to be a little a, yeah, be it's a while. A while. Yeah. yeah. And I'm seeing federal agencies, you know, step up to the plate and address this at their national meetings. So mm-hmm. for example, um, Federal Office of Rural Health Policy in 2018 had a national advisory committee on rural health and human services had a whole three day summit on adverse childhood experiences. Oh, that's good. And we yeah. went into rural parts of New York, mm-hmm. drove around, saw what some of the problems were, schools, churches. We sat in a church basement for half a day and looked, learned at some of what some of the community, some of the issues were. Right. But then it also revealed to me some of the issues with data collection. Right. For example, we need to know what's happening in rural parts of the Midwest or in tribal communities or right. in you know border, border states. There's all kinds of events that's been happening that we may not have been able to quantify among kids before. Right. So I think we're seeing the movement there. Mm-hmm. It's just surprising it's taken so many years to get here, but it is right. coming. Right. Well, that's good, and maybe that's something we can continue to advocate for. And yes, and I think push you're that envelope. Absolutely right, Dr. Bennett. That the COVID nineteen pandemic has laid all of that bare, where people right. realize there's structural issues with childcare, with housing, mm-hmm. with food insecurity, et cetera, that were not so obvious. They were always there, right? but maybe not as obvious until the pandemic has kind of made them much more yeah. people aware of what's And I think a lot, of those issues ex- a lot of those issues exist everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think urban, suburban communities, it's kind of masked because they do have resources to try to address it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get out to rural where they don't have the resources, there's just fewer people, so it's just not on the radar for folks. They're Absolutely. not paying attention to it. But I, I do think this is the one of the very few silver linings of COVID that it's opened this up. And, you know, one of my platforms, Soapbox Moments is, you know, I think this is an opportunity for rural to really lead the way 
and to demonstrate. These are models that work, home visiting, school-based programs. Libraries, library adapting is gonna be huge. Right, so let's let's adopt those and bring those to the suburbs, to right. the urban areas, instead of going the other way, which tends to happen. And I, th- I think there's a way that we could move forward to make rural stronger after this. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, gonna, it's gonna take some initiative and will and resources, money. Money, yes. And I'm sure you've seen that the there's a new rural definition coming <laughs> Yes, there's a couple. That may there's, redistribute yeah. some more of the resources that are already there, so. Right, yeah, the, and you know, our first episode is what is rural for yes. this podcast, and there's a couple definitions that may be changing. One is one is changing, the OMB definition might also be under flux. Yeah. Um, both of which are good because it would expand the definition of rural, be more inclusive, um, the concern being, you know, if no more resources come along with that, then that's the same amount of money for more people. Absolutely. So there's there's always trade-offs with these things, but Absolutely. we'll continue yeah. to advocate for getting help to where it needs to be. Yeah, and again, I think the last four or so years, you know, with different administrations, we've seen the rural voice be stronger. Right. And I think with the COVID-19, we've also <laughs> seen what's happened. It's been people, like the national attention on rural has been higher than it's been previously. No, absolutely, which yeah. has been a great thing. Yeah. So the thing to be interesting going forward, I guess, for kids is too, is just, again, the access and resources in rural since mm-hmm. with financial difficulties due to COVID, you know, we may see less, you know, I'm, I'm concerned, less pediatric offices in rural, less right. med- clinic, medicine clinic offices in rural, et cetera. Right. Yeah. You're 100% right. So we've talked a good bit about a lot of the challenges among our rural communities. Um, tell me, you've been doing rural stuff for quite a while now. What do you see that's good about rural, especially rural South Carolina? What's going on? Oh my gosh, on? What's going so on? much. That's good. Yeah, churches, communities, libraries, like got the social cohesion part, mm-hmm. the volunteerism, the um, having other mentors in your area, all of that we've seen, looked at, you know, at least quantitatively and qualitatively a little bit and saw that we see a lot more of that so social cohesion measures mm-hmm. than we might see in an urban area. So while right. urban kids may have lower rates of some ACEs, they still have the ACEs, but what we see among rural kids, they're having higher rates of a lot of these positive experiences, which really kind of leaves us with a good, you know, there's there's great ways to prevent and moderate the, you know, impacts or associations with mm-hmm. having some negative experiences in early childhood. Mm-hmm. But we know that rural's got a lot of positive social cohesion measures that really we should build resiliency in rural kids. If you took off your academic hat, professor hat, <laughs> how would you define rural? You can't use the words OMB or FORP <laughs> or anything like that. I would think more remote and less resources. Mm-hmm. It's kind of how I would envision. I'm just envisioning my own rural experience, which is you have, a, you have a mental image. Yeah, my mental image is farmland, just because, mm-hmm. again, in Kentucky, we drove around to farm. Oh, that's what we spent my whole childhood doing. Mm-hmm. And so that's my my image is the rolling hills of Glasgow, Kentucky. Right, yeah. Well, that's good. I haven't spent as much time in rural South Carolina. I've driven around a little bit, going around to different meetings, different places. But and then, then my brother lives in Appalachia, so we've seen a lot of mountains in Appalachia as well. Right, yeah. Which so is it can look very different. It is a very different looking rural, but rural nonetheless. Yeah, the rural the rolling things. hills of Kentucky versus the rural mountainous area of Appalachia of Kentucky is quite different and mm-hmm. quite different in resources, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for, I think, when you have, like I teach a rural health class this spring, every spring, and that one of the things that's been hard to get addressed from people that have not been in rural is, mm-hmm. we usually do a field trip. 
mm-hmm. which your all's research center has helped us many times coordinate, mm-hmm. which we appreciate. But we have been able to do it last year, this year due to COVID nineteen. Right. But for kids, and I say stu- kids because they're twenty four years old that are right. um, in graduate school going to look at a rural health hospital, they often don't know what rural looks like. Right. And just may interesting to me because yeah. I may have grown up in the city, but I spent a lot of time in rural Kentucky and just how different rural South Carolina is from rural Kentucky versus from parts of Appalachian, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. It's just, I don't know, it's hard to describe unless you've been there. Right. You know it when you see it. You know when you see it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, that's that's a perfectly fine answer. Well, this has been a very good conversation. Thank you for joining me and trying to uh, talk more about these ACEs and especially PCEs and things that are positive that we're actually doing to try to combat those. So thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Dr. Bennett. So for more information on our guest today and um, the information that she mentioned, uh, check our show notes. We'll have links to some of those things in there as well. And stay tuned for more episodes coming out soon. Uh, If you like what you've heard, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. Only five stars are allowed. And if you have ideas for guests you'd like for us to interview or talk to, please reach out and let us know. That's all for today. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Growing Rural Podcast. If you found the content valuable, please leave a rating on iTunes or Spotify so others can find us. For more information, please visit our website at sc.edu forward slash rural healthcare or follow us on Twitter at sc underscore crph. This was recorded at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Columbia. It is edited and produced by Sean Riffle. Y'all take care.